Welcome to Case by Case. You have Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain from Xylofloid Zadkovich here with you. How are you, Callum? I'm very good. I'm very good. We're on something of a roll now, three, three in a row, and we're preserving this despite you being somewhat out of town. Exactly. I am coming to you all from Abuja, Nigeria. I'm actually over here on the invitation of the Nigerian Shippers Council for a quite a prestigious event, if I can say that, where over a hundred judges from across Nigeria at all levels, led by the acting Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Nigeria and judges from other West African countries, from Gambia, Ghana, Kenya, and Sierra Leone. So it's it's a real pleasure to be here. The conference is halfway through. And to link it back to case by case, this whole speaking slot arose by virtue of the, the episode that we did with um, Adi Afun on the Sam Purpose case. It's, it's a, it, I remember this being an interesting case and the Nigerian legal position being slightly out of step with other common law jurisdictions. And it seems as Adi anticipated on that, on that podcast, that the, the Nigerian legislature and judiciary are looking very closely at, at, uh, at that case and the precedent that was set by that case and they're, uh, you know, inviting people from all over the world to, to, to speak on maritime liens in the context of crew wages. So it's, it's, I mean, it's amazing that this, that having Adi on this podcast and talking through that case with him has led to you being out in Nigeria, speaking to a room full of West African judges. Yeah, I know. I know. It was episode 22 for those who want to go back and have a look, but that, that, uh, case of Sam Purpose case was all about jurisdiction for crew wages claims and whether that properly falls under the Nigerian constitution in the Admiralty Courts, or whether it falls within the jurisdiction of the National Industrial Court, or alternatively both. That decision decided it was in the, uh, in the National Industrial Courts. And um, part of my presentation is to present the international perspective and, and how these types of claims for a host of reasons, you know, better placed in the Admiralty jurisdiction. But of course, it's it's a question that will be decided subject to Nigerian law, and I'm offering just one perspective on it from other jurisdictions. So anyway, that's, that's what I'm doing tomorrow. Today's episode, though, is not about Nigerian Admiralty jurisdiction or otherwise. We have, though, another English decision, and it's another decision of Mr. Justice Foxton, hot off the heels of last week's uh, decision from, from the Justice. It's the, it's the Justin Foxton fan club um, pouring, <laughs> pouring over his latest work. Yeah, we're just, we're just getting his decisions sent directly to us now. Exactly. Um, so we can do it. <laughs> and this, uh, this case is called ARI and WXJ uh, abbreviations, and it was handed down on the 20th of June, 2022. So a nice and recent case. And it's, it's one for the, the arbitration lovers out there. We, we do uh, at the firm, a lot of arbitration work. And while this relates to an LMAA arbitration, a, a London Maritime Arbitrators Association appointment, the, the decision really is about arbitration more generally, and in, in particular, uh, how to appoint arbitrators. And, and, and it's, I thought it was quite an interesting case, actually. Short one, but a, a really interesting one. Yeah, a short one, but an interesting one on something that I think every now and again, there's a case that comes out on appointment of arbitrators 
and every lawyer in the market kind of collectively reads it through through their fingers almost thinking oh my god is this something that we do properly is that you know is our standard practice as a firm something which the court's going to say is 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 good and judgments like this i, I mean i remember a few years ago there was the glencore arbitration the, the, the sorry the glencore court case on that turned on on whether notice had been validly sent to the right person and that changed the way people practiced a little bit because it was found in that case that it hadn't been and the the arbitration had had not been properly commenced because it had been sent to somebody who didn't have the right authority to receive it. And that changed practice a little bit, I would say. People just being very careful to make sure that the arbitration notice was sent to somebody who who could receive it and, you know, who's in the legal team, for example, serving a legal function, or alternatively to to send it to, to appointed solicitors on the other side. This one, I think the Mr. Justice Foxton in this case has really paid a lot of attention to maritime arbitration practice and the the decision is consistent with the way that with the way that the practice has developed. I think that had it had this gone the other way and get into the, the decision, and, and if this indeed was to go the other way, were it to go up to the Court of Appeal, then that probably would be a factor that would change change practice and change the way that maritime arbitrations are commenced. Because it's yeah. all about the extent to which the terms are agreed between the the appoint the, the, the appointing party and the appointed arbitrator. Yeah, exactly. I, I had exa- I had the same reaction to you uh, when I was reading it I was like oh you know final day appointment where is this going I hope someone hasn't got it wrong you know we've got colleagues out there that are involved in this matter and you know you you don't you don't want to see anyone making mistakes on things like this and you're you're quite right that the decision this decision reflects practice and and how things are done but I've got to say I tend to think that this may not not drastically change things, but there there are points here to take away from a practice perspective, and well, probably, it's probably best to to get into it a bit first. But but my point on this is, and it's it's a question I think to keep in mind for the listener as you as you, as you listen in during this podcast is put yourself in the shoes of the arbitrator, and okay, in LMAA arbitrations, most of the arbitrators are well-versed in these appointments and, you know, it's quite relaxed, I'd say, compared to some other appointments. But but for those that aren't, uh, that perhaps are coming from, you know, the big end of town, are taking arbitrator appointments or, or indeed from other jurisdictions accepting appointments, I can see arbitrators starting to put in conditions on their appointment, which may slow up the process right at the end. And And if you're if you're grasping around on the final day trying to get an arbitrator at the last minute, and you know we do know of cases where that happens for a variety of reasons, if you've then got arbitrators putting conditionality in their appointment, you're suddenly in the situation of having to either go to another arbitrator or seek instructions on that conditionality, clients in different time zones. It just, you know, it's an, it's another example of uh, let's get our ducks in a row earlier and i can see arbitrators actually taking quite a lot of notice of this decision yeah i can, and i think also practitioners i think that there are things that i would do just to just to tweak the practice that we do to make sure that even though the question was answered in favor of the of and we'll get into the, what the question was and how it was answered but even though it was answered in favor of the kind of current practice the fact the question was asked is something that you don't want, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be in a position of having this asked in the future. You want to just make sure that you've, you've dotted every I and crossed every T. Well, put it another way and, and maybe, maybe, you know, it'd be useful to set out the facts at this stage. 
But when I read the facts after the law, admittedly, but when I read the facts, I thought, well, this is pretty typical. What's, what's the issue, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, There's not a lot that jumps out of it that I, that I would have thought, oh, I would have done it differently. Um, it all seemed pretty standard. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Well, would, would you like to do that, Callum? Do you want to just yeah, yeah, give us the, the headline facts? Let's, let's, let's go for the kind of key facts. So, so we've got these, these two parties that are both three letter ac acronyms because, um, it's arbitration. So obviously it's, it's all confidential and the arbitrators are also, uh, one's named GGG and the other is JJJ. So again, to preserve confidentiality where it's all anonymized. What we do know is that this was the constitution of a tribunal in a London Maritime Arbitrators Association arbitration. So the LMAA with which I imagine most of our listeners ship will be very familiar and the the issue was whether the the second party to appoint the arbitrator had properly appointed their arbitrator within the deadline and the reason that this this issue arose is that the contract that was in dispute had a very standard arbitration agreement LMAA arbitration a tribunal of three people and 14 days for the kind of respondent to appoint their arbitrator once they receive notice of the of the claimant's appointment and on the 14th day again as is, as is fairly routine on the 14th day the respondent appointed an arbitrator the arbitrator said to them happy to accept the appointment subject to clearing conflicts at my end the arbitrator then cleared conflicts and responded saying i've, I've cleared my conflict so it looks like i'm good to accept the appointment and then later on the arbitrator said actually I can't accept this appointment because, and it looked as though the arbitrator belonged to a, a firm, potentially a firm of solicitors, and his charge-out rate wasn't compatible with the with the maximum rate chargeable under the LMAA terms. I, I assume there that this was either the appointment fee or the or the hearing fee, which are, which are currently fixed by the LMAA, but it's not sure exactly otherwise how, unless it's small claims arbitration, how the how the fee structure from the LMAA would be a barrier to the appointment being accepted. But in either case, there was a, there was a kind of disagreement over fees between the arbitrator and the appoint and the appointing party. And the arbitrator basically said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't accept these, these fee restrictions. And the other side said, well, if you haven't agreed the fees, if you haven't, if you don't have a contract between you and the arbitrator setting out all of the essential terms, which includes the amount that you're going to pay the arbitrator, then the appointment never crystallized and you therefore failed to appoint an arbitrator within the 14 day period or at all. And therefore our arbitrator is going to be the sole arbitrator for this, for this reference. And obviously the, the respondent disagreed and said, no, we validly appointed. There's enough here for an appointment. It's just that there's subsequently been an issue on fees. Yeah, exactly. So it, it raises a, an interesting legal question and one that I'll admit I hadn't thought of previously. And that is, what is the, the status of the relationship or how do you characterize the relationship between appointing parties, the party appointing the arbitrator and the arbitrator? And, you know, for those that don't do this regularly, what typically happens is you um, identify the arbitrator that you'd like to appoint, whether this is at the outset or, you know, in response to someone else's appointment, as was the case here, you identify your arbitrator appointment. You pick up the phone, you check their availability, you send some type of correspondence back and forth to confirm their availability and willingness to act, and then you give notice of that appointment to the other. So pretty much what happened here, nothing quite unusual about that. But what, what 
what this case is, is bringing into sharp focus is when you pick up the phone as the appointing party or send an email back and forth, however it's done, and inquire of the availability of the arbitrator, the arbitrator confirms willingness to act, let's just say unconditionally, and uh, you then say, okay, thank you, we're now going to appoint you. What has happened between appointing party and the arbitrator? It, and and does, it, does, it, does it matter whether you've formed an actual contract or is there something, I think it's references a status or, or some other kind of relationship between appointing party and arbitrator that is sufficient for that to be a binding appointment, which is then notified to the other party? Yeah. And I, I thought this was a really interesting point. The, the distinction that the judge drew between there being a contract between the appointing party and the arbitrator and there being a, the, the arbitrator accepting the appointment. And the, the judge effectively said, there doesn't have, you don't have to show that there's a contract. If there is a contract, then great, you've appointed, but you don't have to show that there's a contract in order to appoint. You can, you can, you can have an appointment without having the contract. Yeah. And so on the, on the situation here, there was actually some conditionality built in to the original response by the arbitrator that was cleared. And what I mean by that is that when the appointing party solicitor sent a message to the arbitrator asking for their availability, the arbitrator wrote back saying, yes, I'd like to act or something like that as an arbitrator, um, but subject to conflicts. So there was a, a condition put on the initial acceptance. So at that stage, there had not been acceptance of the appointment. The solicitors wrote back saying, okay, we're going to go, go ahead and appoint you once you've cleared conflicts. So basically putting the arbitrator on notice that they were going to appoint. They also explained there was a very tight deadline within a day for the appointment. And then the arbitrator wrote back and said, conflicts are cleared, words to that effect. And so that conditionality was lifted. And and in, in the facts of this case, the judge found that that was then an unconditional acceptance. And then that unconditional acceptance was notified to the other side. Well, first it was notified to the arbitrator and notified to the other side. I think it was actually a message that was sent to both at the same time, but it also satisfied the contract test as well, according to the judge. And the judge thought that a contract had been formed here. That was an, that was an interesting point, but the, but the judge also, the judge also was, was, was clear to, clear, clear that you don't need that contract. I, th I thought it was interesting. The judge said there was a contract anyway, just kind of covering off, covering off that if it's raised on appeal, I suspect. But what was, I thought interesting for me is the, was the way the judge dealt with this, this concept of an appointment being an appointment being made, notwithstanding that there's, that there is no contract or, you know, in circumstances where there is no contract, you can still have a valid appointment and. It, what was interesting to me is firstly that the judge said that this was, there were, there are particular, there's a, this is a particular feature in maritime arbitrations where there's a rapidly informal process. And he said that, you know, the, the way to, the way to consider whether an appointment has happened is to take a kind of broad and non-technical approach. He's, he says that at, at paragraph 13 and then in paragraph 15, he, he talks about how you want to approach this pragmatically rather than doctrine, doctrinally. And I think that that's right. It, it's, it's just interesting then to say, okay, well, what are the pragma, what, what are the pragmatic points that you need to hit? You know, it's, it's one thing to say, let's look at this in a pragmatic way, but there needs to be some guidance on what does, you know, what should practitioners do to ensure that they have appointed an arbitrator? And he gives that then, I think at, at paragraph 22, where, when he goes on to say that there needs to be a clear and unconditional 
communication of acceptance of the appointment by the arbitrator, which then needs to be notified to the other party. And it also needs to be notified to the arbitrator as well. So there's, there's kind of like three, three steps in there. One is the unconditional acceptance by the arbitrator. There's then a notification that's made of the appointment to the arbitrator and and then a third step notification to, to the other side. And if all those happen, so the, so the clear and unconditional acceptance by the arbitrator, then you, you have a, an appointment in place. Um, that's something short of a formal contract, according to the judge between the appointing party and the arbitrator. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting concept that because it kind of suggests, well, there may then be some type of negotiation thereafter on terms or, or, or so, some other aspect to the appointment that could still be discussed later. Otherwise, you know, if, if it didn't contemplate that, then it could be clothed in, in, you know, in a contract sense. I, I think the judge was reluctant to go down the con the contract analysis route because that gets into, you know, formal rules of contract formation. And I think the judge wanted to stay away from that and, and almost set out, set up an independent or a standalone method for appointing arbitrators that didn't require the, that formal contractual analysis that you get in other contexts. Yeah, I think that's right. And the judge even mentioned again, with reference to, uh, the text London maritime arbitration by Ambrose Maxwell and Collett, that it's, it's not uncommon for arbitrators to accept appointments without an agreement on their fees, particularly again in the LMAA context. So I think you're right. He, the judge was very keen to avoid a situation where there had to be that analysis, that doctrinal analysis on whether a contract had been formed when what you're looking at is whether there's been an appointment of arbitrator. One point that I thought was quite interesting is that the, the judge referred to a practice. This is a paragraph 21 where, which, which the judge said was a reasonably common occurrence in which an arbitrating party sends out a number of requests to potential arbitrators asking if they're willing and available to accept appointment before then choosing one of those arbitrators and notifying that one arbitrator that they are the kind of successful candidate. And I thought that was quite interesting because that's not a practice that, that I tend to use. I think it's not one that we tend to use at, at ZFZ. We, we often that's what I use as well. It's not one I've used as well. No. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I wonder, I, I, it's always interesting to see if there's, you know, maybe that's going on somewhere else in the market, but we tend to kind of identify the arbitrator that we want for any, for any given case. And then, and you know, if there's any reason why they can't do it, then obviously you look elsewhere, but we wouldn't identify, you know, a, a selection and ask the arbitrators to confirm their availability unless we were pretty confident that we were going to make the appointment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had the same reaction to that. I hadn't heard of that kind of approach uh, happening. <laughs> You're then in the position of having to turn down multiple arbitrators after they've said yes as well. You know, okay, you weren't well, you weren't quick off the mark, so sorry. Next time, yeah, exactly. All right, we we like you, but not that much. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we would got you in our top three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, from from your perspective, then, do you think this is there anything you would do differently in appointing an arbitrator knowing what you know in this case? Well, other than the obvious in that, you know, saving it until the last minute always runs a risk and whether it's on you know, proper notice, whether it's on this issue of have you appointed properly, but, but so often you don't have the benefit of time and, you know, even with the, the best of will, a client may drop something on you and it might not be their fault either that that you have to act really quickly or you're right up against the time bar and you need to make an appointment 
quickly. So you don't always have that luxury. I think that is point number one though. Point number two is from the practitioner's perspective is to be on the lookout for any conditionality in the message that comes back from the arbitrator. And also there is the practice of picking up the phone often you know, because it's urgent to check that the arbitrator is in town, they're not on holidays, they're not, you know, um, otherwise tied up to check with them to see if they are available and with giving the parties names only. And that's all that happens in those calls and then follow up with a, an email thereafter. I, I think it's in that process where, you know, it's worth reflecting on this decision, looking at paragraphs 22 in particular and, and the rest of it to say, okay, have we got a sufficiently clear email chain back and forth in writing allows us to say we have a clear and unconditional acceptance from the arbitrator that they're accepting this appointment. If there's conditionality of some kind built in there, for example, yep, free to act, but we still need to send through our terms or our engagement letter. Oh, hang on. That's a problem. That's an issue. That is not an unconditional acceptance by the arbitrator. And I can see that being actually really easy to do. I could, I could just see something like, you know, at the end of the email, trust our, you know, our engagement letter, um, uh, it, it is agreed or in our full terms to follow as per usual appointments, something like that. If there's not then the conditionality lifted by the appointing party to say, yes, agreed. Now that sounds a bit contractual, I suppose, but if there's not something that lifts that conditionality, or you go back to the arbitrator and say, well, look, we'll discuss your full terms in due course. We have to get instructions on those, but for, for current purposes, we need to lift any conditionality that you can see there's a, there's a little bit of a gray area in there. I don't think that would arise often with maritime arbitrators in the LMAA based on experience. Maybe they might adopt a different approach moving forward in light of this decision, but for those that are not you know, the, 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 the typical ones that we see day in, day out in, in LMA arbitrations, I could just see something slipping in there and you thinking, oh, it's fine. And you, you make the appointment and suddenly you're on the receiving end of this kind of argument. I, I totally agree. I had the exact same thought that you have to be careful, you know, very careful that, about what's in the response from the arbitrator, just because some conditionality that somehow snuck in there could un, unwind the whole appointment as, you know, it's. It's just something that people should be aware of as they as they appoint in the future. Because one, th it's, it's one thing in this in this judgment where it's very clear that it's a pragmatic approach. It's very clear that it's not doing this contractual analysis, and that's in line with 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 market practice. But it also makes it very clear that if the appointment is subject to something, that subject has to be you know it has to be satisfied before the appointment's valid. Otherwise, it's not an unequivocal acceptance of appointment. Yeah, it, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Well. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. I thought that it's always interesting going back and looking at situations that you think you know so well that you've done it how many times I've lost count over the years and then something arises which makes you reflect upon it from a legal position. And admittedly, how, how often would it arise that the two arbitrators would have a discussion about costs and your own arbitrator then turns around to you and says, oh, I, you know, I can't, <laughs> I cannot be appointed here because I'm bound by rates. Y you know, you'd kind of think that that's something that could be sorted out between appointing party and arbitrator without the need for all of this. But, um, and nonetheless, it, it made for a, an interesting, interesting analysis. 
Yeah, and I and I wondered what the outcome was for the arbitrator because the, the background to all this is the arbitrator basically saying I don't want to do it for those rates, and there's there's nothing in this decision that talks about whether the arbitrator was was then you know stepped out, replaced by a different arbitrator. It's not that's not covered in the in the judgment, and it's a separate question, you know, to the question of the arbitrator's initial appointment. But I do wonder what how that how that was resolved. Yeah, interesting. So you also got to wonder about taking some of these points, right? I can think of many clients who just say, let's just get on with it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, th- this work, other, but really, yeah, yeah, how it really is technicality stuff. It is. And how, 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 how confident are you that having your own arbitrator as sole arbitrator is going to make such a difference to the outcome in the case? And the arbitrators are all, you know, fiercely independent anyway, among the LMA arbitrators, you know, there's each party obviously appoints their own arbitrator. And there's obviously a familiarity with some of the arbitrators that you appoint more often than others. But at the same time, to go to this length on a point, which is this technical, which is so against the normal industry, uh, you know, the, the normal industry way of doing things to then take it to a, to a judgment of the court. And the benefit to you, if you win, is that your arbitrator is sole arbitrator rather than, rather than having, having two arbitrators. It seems to me like, a, you know, there's a lot to lose and not a huge amount to gain. I agree more. I totally agree with that. And it, I, I was just looking at the end. I don't think costs are mentioned here, but I dare say they had to pay quite a bit of costs, uh, given a junior NQC on this at leading firms to have the question tested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not, it's not going to be a cheap hearing, is it? No. No, and you haven't even got off, you got away from uh, the appointment. You're still at square one. On the yeah, table. exactly. Okay. All right, that, Callum. Good to kick it around with you. It was fun doing a, a podcast from Nigeria. I don't know whether I'm going to be doing this anytime soon. Hopefully, hopefully I'll be back. Um, it's been a, a wonderful stay so far and such warm hospitality. Everyone's really, really nice. So yeah, thanks for listening in everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do. Uh, like, subscribe, and do all that good stuff for us. We really appreciate it and hope that you've uh, you've got something out of this episode and that um, there's some more good ones coming your way soon. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Luke. Thank you. Take care.